All right. <clears throat> Great week. So we're ready to dig in. Let's start with just looking at the most obvious um, observations. Before we start trying to draw out some of the points Cade was taking us to, we want to just get some basic points down. So let's see. I've lost my black marker here. Let me get this one. Okay, tell me what we saw in observations. The first thing you do when you're going to observe a chapter is to look for what? Keywords. Key so let's do that first. Keywords. Okay, give me what you saw for keywords in this chapter. Obviously, Jesus. Okay. That's really cool, wasn't it? The word salvation. And man, sanctification, um, sanctified you. Hold on, let me look, see how that one was used. The one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. So... Okay. Appreciation. Oh, propitiation. Yes, correct. And I do appreciate that. <laughs> My hearing isn't good sometimes. Propiti. I have to learn how to spell. Okay, propitiation. Dead and death. Yes. We had a lot of words, didn't we? How many of you guys did your lists on all those lovely words? As you did those, here's the thing. I, I didn't see any hands go up. This concerns me slightly because one of the things about doing lists on the words that you mark, sometimes you're able to see how uh, some, some of your words that you marked independently actually come together and could be one subject matter, okay? So we're going to look at that. For instance, here's one that was just mentioned, this idea of salvation and sanctification. We're going to look at that more carefully, but we're going to see how those actually unite into one statement. So there are, there are various kinds of sanctification, right? There's a sanctification, which is justification, and then there's a sanctification, which is your... Um, um, Sanctification. <laughs> I had to. Re what was the other verb tense? It was the right word. The sanctification of your faith growth, right? And then there's sanctification as in glorification. So in the context of this passage, if you had done a, a, a list making, you might have come to see how that word sanctification there is, is united with the verse that, that precedes it and carries you down into that word of sanctification, right? So that therefore sanctification and salvation are going to become one. But you wouldn't have come to that, you would not see that unless you did your list. Okay, so just a little extra <laughs> encouragement to make sure you do list making. Uh, and is there, are there any other words that you marked? Yes. Okay, good. Okay. Man, brethren, the children, those who are sanctified. Good. Perfect. Good job. Subject to 
Yes, thank you. Subjected to, good. I did that one also, good. Isn't that interesting? We did talk about that very briefly last week. I think in this class, I think I took you over into chapter 2 and showed you that flow of thought about when he talks about the heavens and the earth and so forth um, and and those who will inherit salvation. And then I think I took you over into chapter 2 and said, it, verse 5 is where it's talking about, for, the, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But, and then he goes on. So in chapter 2, you see that he's talking about the world to come. When he again brings them into the world, which is the future tense, which is why we did the timeline. The timeline helped us to see where each of those points were being placed on that timeline, right? It absolutely is. Right. So last year, that's exactly right, Craig, and that is what we talked Do you guys remember we talked about this last week? I, when we did that timeline, I said, this is like doing eschatology. And chapter 1 in particular, but chapter 2 then follows on and adds more, just more details about that. That is exactly right. In chapter 1, you can actually do an entire eschatology timeline starting from the, the propitiation at the cross, where in that chapter he calls it, um, where he made... Um, what does it say? He said, he makes purification of sins. I keep forgetting that word. Yeah, I want to call it propitiation every time. He made purification for sin and sat down. And then you can follow systematically with everything that's given in chapter 1 and do it entire all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. It's awesome. So, yes, in chapter 2, that is exactly correct. Well, it does. It does. But I'm just saying that primarily in chapter 1, he starts with, the, with making that um, purification of sin, right? Although he talks about what was spoken of beforehand, too. Well, yes. Yes. Isn't that... Yeah. So it's showing that there's a, prog a progression of things, isn't there? Right, until and when. And did you catch the phrase for a little while? Did y'all catch that one in market? It's actually twice. It's in seven and in nine. For a, I think it's in nine. Uh, yes, nine, for a little while. So those, that's another one that you might want to have marked for a little while. And so these time references definitely help us to see that there are, um, there are things which happen in the mind of God that he has ordained, right, decreed, and yet there's not a fulfillment of them until a, at a later time, an actual literal fulfillment of them, right? So, for instance, when we looked last week at Jesus having become as much greater than the angels, right, that having become was what, by definition? What did he mean, having become? He wasn't before, and now he is? Jesus wasn't before the begotten son, but now he is the begotten son? No, that's not what it means, is it? It's accomplished. Very good, Carrie. That's exactly right. The word there is really accomplished. He's now accomplished it or fulfilled it, or it has come into a point in time in, in literal history for us, where before it was in the mind and the plan of God from before the foundation of the world, but now it's, 
it's fulfilled, it's accomplished. Okay, having, be, it's the word uh, G-I-N-O-M-A-I, genomia. To come to pass, happen, to appear in history, came upon the stage. So it's something that which has become, all right? Not that it wasn't before, but that it's now fulfilled. All right, so good keywords, lots of Lots of things to chew on here at this point. What did we see about references of time, though? Let's go ahead and mark all those references of time because it, we can see since uh, Carrie brought it up um, that these references of time seem to be rather significant in this particular um, record so far. What kind of phrases were in there or just time reference words did you see that kind of brought to your attention that something either has happened or did happen or will happen or? Okay, the world to come. That's a per perfect one. The world to come, that's in verse 5. Okay, but, but now, and that one is where? In 8, okay. So what it, how does, what's the full context of that one, but now? Okay, but now, and then they go on to the next one, not yet see, would be the next part of it, right? Not yet see. And I'm just going to put in, in a little parentheses there, not see it, because it's speaking of something. We, we do not yet see it, okay? And prior to that in verse 8, though, it says that something had been accomplished. What? Have put. Right? As if it's a completed action. And yet it seems like it's in contrast, not yet see, but, but he, ha he has put. Right? So that's kind of almost a contrast in those time references. He has put it there, and yet we do not yet see it. Okay. All right, we'll go, let's move on with more contrasts, just real quickly, a couple of them. Just to get us going. You know, one of the nice things about contrasts is contracts often will bring to the surface what some of the major points are that are going on in a passage. You may not catch them until you do those con contrasts and comparison kinds of things. So what, what did you see? Uh-huh. Okay, all right, so uh, word, how, how did you put that? The word, words spoken by angels. Okay, how much more words of Christ? Does it say Christ or words of? Words of the Lord, okay. All right, now that one is in verse what? Two and three, okay. So there's one contrast. Words spoken by angels, if you disobeyed, there was punishment. And how much more the words of the Lord, right? Oh, 
oh, I loved that contrast. And I don't have room to put that up here, so you guys put that one down. He's, he's, let me look and see. I think I've got it written down here. Um, we do not yet see man in his position of glory, right? But we do see Jesus in glory, right? Glorified, crowned, having suffered the death, crowned with glory and honor. So that's the contrast. What we don't see yet for man in the glory that he has been ordained to have, but we see Jesus at the present moment already glorified. That's going to be uh, verse 8 and then contrasted with verse 9. So in 8, we do not yet see um, all things subjected to man, correct? But we do see Jesus glorified. So in a, in, a, in a sense, what do you see about that statement there, that contrast? What do you see going on? There you go. That there's still a promise of an accomplishment that's not fulfilled yet, but part of it has been, right? If you can think about, you know, this kind of a, uh, of, a, of a deal, even back through the Old Testament, how often through the Old Testament were there promises of the coming Savior they had not yet seen fulfilled? Now we've got that part fulfilled. And yet there's still more to the story, and that is one day, man, all things will be put in subjection to him. Now that's a whole nother story subject of study, which we haven't hit on yet, and I'm not sure if she's going to take us there, but, but does anybody know what that's making reference to? When is the world going to be in subjection to us? In the millennial reign. So you go into Revelation, and you can see all those places. Um, I think I actually wrote one down. It was in... Yes. Okay, so there's another contrast that, that, I don't know if I can squeeze it on. Let me see if I can. Um, I'm going to put on here. Are you talk, now give me, Kara, give me that again. And tell me what you're saying. Okay, so man, a little while long, long a little a little while lower. Now, is it a contrast or is it a comparison? It is a comparison, isn't it? So I'm going to put it like this. Jesus, a little while lower. Interesting that in, in the fact that what did we learn in chapter 1 concerning angels? In positionally before God. They're lower. Than, okay, so angel, Jesus is greater than the angels or better than the angels, right? And in the close of that chapter 1 in verse 14, he also exalts man above them, does he not? What does he say in, concerning man in chapter 1 verse 14 con, compared to the angels? What are the purpose of the angels? They're our ministering service. So positionally, God has made them as ministers. They are lower than Jesus. And technically, they're actually even lower than the, than, uh, the angels are lower than man because they're our servants, right? They're there as ministering service to us. And yet here he's saying, but for a little while, I have made man lower than the angels. And then he compares it in the next verse. And for a little while, I made Jesus lower. 
But where is Jesus now? He's higher because he's been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God. He has received his glory. What does it say about us then? We have been promised what? One day to have all things in subjection to our feet, right? But for a little while, what? We've been made lower than the angels. So what is the hope in all that? God promised, has told us all these promises about Jesus, and yet Jesus for a little while did become lower than the angels. He took on humanity and flesh, right? Not that he left his deity, but that he took on the form of man, the flesh of man, in order to accomplish the work of God. And in doing that, he became for a little while lower than the angels, but now it's been accomplished. He's, he's been exalted. How, what's the hope in that for us? I, hallelujah. Because one day, although right now for a little while we are lower than the angels, but one day what's coming for us? That same exalting that God has promised and he demonstrated through Jesus and accomplished it, we, have, we can know that there's going to be accomplishment in what he's promised for us as well. Uh, yes. Definitely could. Glory and honor could be, you could make a list on it. Now, wh whether or not that's as significant as the others will develop as you make your list. You'll come to see what, how much importance that really ties in. How many times does glory and honor get mentioned in all of the lists so that kind of seems like there's a tying together of that subject matter of glory and honor as a catalyst for a lot of the things that are being said. It absolutely. So not to angels, but to man. Okay, so um, again, that just, I wish I had more room. Not to angels, but to man. That's a good one. That is a good one. I missed that one. Okay. Okay, for sure he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. I did do a word study on that. I did not see that. Which one? Did, which which is the the word help? Is the word that tr translated changed? No. Which is the word that changed for? For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. So it was a different translation. They didn't even use the same wording. Ah. Right. Uh, You know what? In, okay, hold on to that thought, Carrie, because I'm in agreement with you on the principle of it. I don't know. I didn't see that translation. I just worked with the words that were there. The word giving help, once you look it up and understand what that word is then tied to up here, there's another word, another subject that we've already identified that giving help is going to be connected to. And just we'll do that in just a second here. Okay, hold on. Okay, hang on. Because, because you can't just jump into that one without having built it. 
uh, you have to build all the base on it so that people follow that. Because we didn't do it in that translation. We did it in this one. So even in the, even in the word study, it doesn't give you that different uh, wording. In the word study, you just get the definition of gives help. Right? So... Okay. No, it isn't. But but they are the same root base word. Gives help and gives aid. Same base word. Okay, I'm going to take you there and hold on just a minute, because I did I did three of them on that. Gives gives help, comes to the aid, and comfort. Yeah. Okay. So hang on to that because it's really cool. All right. Now. All right, <laughs> I know, we have to build it little by little. But we still end up in the same place that you concluded, Carrie, so it's all good, right? Okay, <laughs> let's start with then subject matters. Um, lar- the lo- one of the largest th- subject matters in here is going to be then Jesus and man and, and what's going on in God's plan for all of this. Now, what I found kind of interesting in my thinking when I was looking at just all that we've done these last couple of weeks, so far... Hebrews has really addressed those, some of those really huge questions that mankind has. Who is, who is man? Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I going after this life, right? And who is God? You know, and so looking at who is God and who is man are some of those most fundamental, uh, urgent kind of needs people seem to have within their spirit realm, especially when it comes to life and death. When people come to a place in their life where they're at the end and they're laying on their deathbed and then they look at their life and they say, who, who am I? Why was I here? What did I accomplish? What was the purpose of this life that I, that I have? And is there an eternal thing after this? Is there a God? And if there is a God, who is he? How, what was his design in all of this thing called my life, which is now coming to its close? These are real fundamental questions. And I see Hebrews 1 and 2 so far really addressing this strongly. In a way, it's a little bit like the Genesis record, who is God and who is man? And, it, and, who, and more importantly, who is man in relationship to God? right? And so you look, at, you look at these two fundamental things, and that's what I want to look at again. We're looking at who is man and who is God, in this case, Jesus. In this particular chapter two, how is Jesus referred to? What, what capacity do we see him? He has taken on the, fle- the flesh of man to do what, though? What is his primary purpose in chapter two? To bring sons to glory, to bring, sons to, glory, to bring salvation, to be our savior, to make propitiation. You guys are all saying the same thing in different words. I love it. Okay, so let's go and look at man first. There's a warning that we open with in this particular chapter, and Kay had asked us to look at the linkage on this, right? She said, how do you see verses 1 to 4? in comparison to what came before it and what follows after. I think she even asked the question, can you read it by omitting one to four, and does the flow continue? And I thought, well, actually it does to me. Now, I don't know what her answer really is on that, but to me I looked at it and said, well, yeah, it can. However, is there a significant opening in verse one, the first three or four words, or what does it say? For this reason. So what is a for this reason, my inductive students? Uh huh. Go ahead. The 
Absolutely. So that's the point afterwards, but the word, um, a, um, hold, hold on, let me open the right page. For this reason is a term of conclusion. And therefore, it links chapter 1 to chapter 2, which you know now is although we have two chapters, because those are given to us by man for, help, for our help, thank you, right? But, but it's, he's saying he's not concluded his thought yet. It's for this reason, and there's a continuation in his thought. And in chapter 1, I think what's really interesting is we move into chapter 2, and the focus is dropped from angels, and it comes on to man, Correct. Did you see in, in verse 14, though, how that transition was actually stated before the for that reason statement? They, they who? Angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So the subject of salvation in man is already introduced at the close of chapter 1. And now into chapter 2, what happens? It gets, it gets expounded upon. It gets broadened. It, gets, it becomes the central focus of the message then in chapter 2. And what then the author is doing is because Jesus is the primary uh, subject of the book on the whole, that Jesus is better than. So what we see in chapter 2 is that Jesus is better than man. Why? Because he is the Savior. And, and the fact that he was made like man was for what purpose? To save me. There you go. To be the Savior. To, to be the one who gives help to man. Right? All right. So let's, let's look at the opening then. When he say, opens it for this reason, then what does he say? Yeah, so there's a warning, right? Here's a warning. Uh, we must pay. I think I jumped ahead of my thinking. Okay. We must pay much closer attention. Now, did anybody do word studies on any of those things by chance? Okay, tell me what you learned about paying much closer attention. Okay. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Isn't that neat? Be addicted to Jesus. Yeah. I like that one. That, that could be a, like a bumper sticker. I like that. <laughs> I'm addicted to Jesus. <laughs> I like that. Okay. That's the word pay. Now, much also has another, another uh, deeper meaning, which is pretty much obvious, but what did you see with that? Much. Oh, okay. Yeah, he... Uh, it's to pay. The word pay is the word that you actually looked up. Forty-three thirty-seven to pay to pay much closer attention. So I also looked up the word much because it was another quality to it, and it's talking to a much greater degree, excessively, all the more, much greater. It serves to emphasize the degree expressed. So that's all that means. So in in many ways, you don't learn a whole lot that you wouldn't obviously note in that. But I do think that sometimes if we 
pay closer attention. We just simply bring it higher on the scale of our, uh, you know, of our attention level so that we really do see that he's actually commanding them. He's in a, in a way he's warning them apparently that there may be in among these or some of them anyway, those who, who have not. And he, and the way I know that is what does he follow it with? What does he say about them? Pay attention because what? So that we don't what? What is drift away? Did him, and I know you all looked that one up because Kate asked you to do that one, right? Okay, to glide by. That's cool. I like that word carelessly, don't you? To carelessly flow by or float, or float past, Okay. Any other insights on that gradually? Okay. So when he's saying this, he's saying, I want you to pay much closer attention so that you don't just um, carelessly float past this or without paying attention to that which you have this. Later, he says, this so great a salvation. It is such a great salvation. It is such an amazing, beautiful thing that God has done for us. And if you don't pay attention to it, then you lose that, that first love, which, like you see in the Revelation record to uh, Ephesus, they don't, do not, you have you lost your first love? And you, what you have to understand in that is, who is he actually addressing? Is he addressing believers or unbelievers? When he says that you, that you say it again? Believers. Okay, he's addressing believers, but what is the warning in it? That drifting, about the idea of drifting away. That maybe in the midst of some of them, there are some who actually, although they've heard the word, they haven't actually come into faith, right? It's, the same, it's exactly the same idea that you see in the book of Revelation. I just want to bring this to your attention right now, although we're not, re- I don't know that Kay is um, going to actually build this, this storyline up or not, but sometimes people get really confused by this. Um, so I just want to kind of clarify a little bit. When you did the book of Revelation and we did the letters to the churches, how many of those letters were warnings? Five out of seven, right? And when he gave warning, what was the result of those who did not adhere to that warning? Say it again. They would drift away. That's really good. Good job. They will drift away. And in Revelation, it said things like, you will not eat of that tree of life. You will not, you know, uh, receive that new name. You will not walk with me in white. You will not. You can make all the negatives to it, saying, if you don't, then this won't happen for you. So although he's addressing a letter to the churches, which are, quote, believers, what is the, what is the underlying message also there for? Those who are sitting in the churches who have not actually come into faith. They've received the word of God. They've been hearing the word of God. Maybe they've even affixed themselves to a church, but they have not yet actually entered into a salvation with God. And they haven't actually made that. The Holy Spirit has not sealed them until the day of redemption. Because what the warning in this is, is that if you're drifting away... That then there's a possibility of you not coming into that. Not, later, Hebrews is going to talk about that. Least you not enter into the rest of God. Be careful. Pay attention. Right? So here we've got the first warning that's saying, evaluate where you're really standing with God. 
And this is something that God does consistently in the word of God over and over. He, yes, he writes a letter and it appears as to believers, but don't just assume that everyone he's talking to is a believer. Assume that by the, by the consequences of them not paying attention and them not paying heed to whatever it is that he's warning them about, that they potentially are in danger of being burned by fire. Okay? Yes. No, because he's speaking collectively to a congregation. Yes. Okay. Hey, okay. We're going to have to divide apples and oranges, okay? I just want to be, be really careful that we do this. He's saying, though, in the following up verses that he's, he talks about... Um, if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Now that penalty in the context of what's being said here is talking about making a reference for them back to their Old Testament, right? And that's what we went back and looked at. Um, and that consequence was death. Okay? So his point here is you can, you can come to death. Now, he's not talking about sinning unto death as a Christian. He's saying if you, don't, if you don't pay attention, you could die in your sins. Okay, so we want to at least hold this up in our minds that we understand that, yes, he's writing to believers, absolutely. But he also has a, a secondary message here for those who might be among the congregation. How many of us do we know in our own congregations, wherever you all attend churches at, that amongst you there are some who, although they're showing up at church every week, you can tell they have not had the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. They are not truly committed to God yet in their life. They're, maybe they're nice people, and yes, they're showing up at church, but yet you don't see in them the fruit. Now, it's not our place to judge. What this author here is saying is you need to examine yourself, right? You need to pay, you need to pay much closer attention. So let's, let's just continue to work on that first. Let's see. He says, first of all, number one, the word spoken through angels It proved unalterable, and every transgression received a just penalty. You know, I just remember that when we did... Um, revelation in particular until you came to realize that he was had a two two-toned message in there it was an encouragement to those who were who were truly in faith to hang in there and to continue but it was also a message to warn others who maybe were in there but weren't really already in faith that they needed to evaluate and make sure that they had that relationship with God because if not the, the result would be they would not receive those rewards that the overcomer was promised Hebrews is doing the same thing. It's going to keep on like this, you guys. So if we don't establish this up front, you're going to miss it. Through the entire book, he's sending us a two-tone message, one to the believer to exhort, one to the unbeliever to examine their life. And so every time we hit a passage where it looks like he's talking about damnation and hell and judgment, he is. And it's a warning. 
okay? All right, so here we go in chapter 1. Let's go back and look at what you did. Day 4 on page 41, or 4 and 5, or maybe it was day 5, day 5, on page 41. You guys looked at some things. She wanted you to see um, how this... Uh, uh, previous history that they had, where the angels uh, had, had witnessed and given the law, and they, saw, they witnessed and saw what happened, right, concerning how important the law was when it was given through them, and that, that although when they gave that law, what, hap- what was the result? What was going to happen to people if they didn't obey that which they had given? And so she took us to look at that. Start with Galatians 3.19. Because I want to establish one point about the giving of the law. What was its purpose? Okay, so the law was given, and they witnessed it, right? Do you remember one of the passages saying that he came from the midst of tens of thousands of angels when he entered onto that mountain, when he came upon that mountain to give them? There were tens of thousands, it says, of angels witnessing the giving of the law right? So it's saying that if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and if transgression of that law received a just penalty, then it's going to go on to say how much more, right? For right now, we want to look at that. The law, however, it was given until when? Until the seed would come. I just wanted to start with that. Because I wanted you to see how the law pertains to what we're working with now, which is uh, the new covenant. Okay, so that's in Galatians uh, 3.19, right? Now we're going to go back and look. She said, go look at all these passages in Leviticus. Oh, this one was good. For those of us who did Leviticus, it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been uh, a difficult uh, cross-reference. But I found myself just really enjoying going back and looking at it again fresh. Okay. The flow of thought in Leviticus 20. What's going on there? What was it that they did? She says, note the transgression and then the judgment. Correct? So in Leviticus 20, what was the transgression? Okay. And? Okay. Okay, you're into Leviticus 24 now, aren't you? Oh, in 20. Okay, in 20. Okay. Oh, let me go back and give you the flow of thought in there by my chapter titles that I had in my Bible from the last time we did it. 1 to 5, it's talking about harlotries with other gods. Now, we call that another word, not a harlotry, but we call that what? Idolatry, right? So it's idolatry, one to five. And in six to nine, again, it's talking about this harlotry with mediums and spiritists, right? Again, that would be a form of idolatry, right? In uh, 10 to 16, now he says in sexual immoralities and adultery. So there's the other form of harlotry, right? Uh, and this time it's a sexual har- harlotry. Why, why that one? What do you think that one's about? How does that relate to idolatry versus uh, sexual improprieties? Okay, and it's a, it's a breaking of covenant again, is it not? God made a covenant. And also, by the way, if you have, um, if you have married someone, you've also made an earthly covenant. Now you've broken. So it's an adultery act. So he equates that to the idea that on the earth you have a covenant with God 
through marriage and that imagery of marriage being your your picture of your relationship with God when you commit adultery in that in that relationship on earth then it's like committing adultery also with God and it's a breaking of covenant and a breaking of covenant so he links them both together in one chapter I I found that very interesting um then he goes on he talks about other forbidden sexual unions in the next 17 to 21 um then in 22 to 26, he basically gives him a, a mandate. He says that you are to make distinctions and be holy, right? And then in 27, what is the result? What is the uh, consequence of all these harlotries and idolatry? What is the result? It's death. So we can say in Leviticus 20, it's harlotries and idolatry. And it equals death. Would you say that's a pretty harsh penalty? Yes. Yeah. So if, if angels who witness the giving of this law, if the transgression of that results in death, that's a pretty, that's a pretty harsh thing. And this was the one which the angels witnessed there, right? So now tell me what we see with the next one in Leviticus 24. Uh, blaspheming. If you are blaspheming God, and also, and then there was a secondary point too, and taking human life, which is murder. So blasphemy and murder. Now, when you murder, who are you killing? A human being who is made in whose image? God's image. Do you see now the parallels with that, where God says that that if you blaspheme God. And if you murder a person in God's economy, they're equated to one another. And the result is death. Again, death. All right. Why do you think God made those so severe punishments? Very serious about them. And, and in the... In the Absolutely. It's a violation of his design. It's a, a, a violation of the covenant that we made with him and that he made with us. It's a, it, and it's ultimately a rejection of God. If you commit adultery, you are rejecting God in God's word. And God says that in his, in his economy for these people because he put them on their land. And he said, you're to represent me. And when they violate that, it's, it's worthy of death because of the, the severity of the offense. Okay, then the next one was uh, Leviticus 26. Yes, there's a disobedience. Uh, basically, it's a rejection of his what? His covenant or his commandments or his statutes. So again, it's disobedience to his word. And also, he also concludes it by saying what? There was another word in there. I liked it. <laughs> Let's see. Um, okay, in verse 15, he really concludes it. If instead you reject my statutes, and if your soul abhors my ordinance so as to not carry out my commandments, and so do what? Break my covenant. So again, covenant breaking. So it's disobedience. Now, these are super important, guys. When we move into chapter 4, 
All of this is going to just, you just kind of have to hang on to some of these thoughts. Disobedience and breaking covenant are equated to one another words. In other words, disobedience is unbelief. Where have we heard that before in Scripture? What about in Romans, right? Romans um, chapter 11 when he's talking about Israel being cut off for their unbelief because they were disobedient, right? We're going to see it again in Hebrews, by the way. Okay, and in the, and in the end, what is the result? Death. Okay, so we've established at this point that what his point is, is how severe the punishment was for those who broke that covenant, who broke that word of God, who rejected that message that he had for his people. I'm sorry, say it again. They had ways of making. Yes. No. He, she just wanted us to understand the law of God. God says in his law, which was witnessed by angels, and he said, if you do these things, this is death. If you do these things, this is death. If you do these things, this is death. And, she's ma- and this author is making the point. If that word given in the Old Testament under the old law, which was witnessed by angels, if that held that severe of a penalty for rejecting it, ignoring it, drifting away from it, what in this case he said did not pay much closer attention to what they heard, and they drifted away from it. Is that not what Israel did? Yeah, and what happened to Israel in the end? What did God do? We saw it in Ezekiel. Took, he cast them off the land, right? And so here he says, so if, if this word spoken through angels, and this word was sp- that was spoken, it's speaking of the law, right? Correct? If that deserved that kind of a severe penalty, then what's the contrast? Verse 3. What's, what, is, what does he say is the next? How will we escape so, such a great? So, so the contrast to that is how will we? If we ignore, right? If, if, we, um, if we neglect so great a salvation. Because the, the difference is, how did our word come to us? Long ago, it was spoken through the law and the prophets. But how is it spoken to us now? In the actual son. And when you make the, the, the flow of thought from chapter 1 to chapter 2, he establishes in chapter 1 who Jesus is. What, who is Jesus in chapter 1? Let's do this. Let's put on here. Let's just do this by review. Verses 1 to 4, he is, uh, he is God's son. This is in chapter 1. And in one, uh, 5 to 9, he is what? He is the begotten. He's the begotten son and the firstborn. 
And I'm going to um, add on to that. Firstborn what? Of the dead, right? Meaning the resurrection is what that reference is to. And then in 10 to 14, he is what? He is the Lord God creator, right? So since all this has been established, if we neglect the word that came to us in this manner, from this source, who is the Son, the begotten, the firstborn from the dead, the Lord God, the creator himself, how much greater penalty will there be than there was for those who ignored this law, which came to them underneath this message, which was by an angel to uh, Moses on Mount Moriah, or on uh, Mount Sinai, rather, right? So the com- that's what the contrast is. The comparison that's being made there is how much greater is our responsibility because our message came from the Son, the begotten. All right, for this reason, do not neglect. Do not neglect it. There's that for this reason. So that's the flow of thought there. And he says, for that reason, number one to four is do not neglect. Now, neglect. Did you all look up the word neglect? Did we talk about that one already? I've, I don't think so. We didn't, did we? Let's, let's do that. What is that word Neglect. To be careless. Okay, it's 272, uh, A-M-E-L-E-O. It's to be careless. Or unconcerned. Make light of. Wow. Okay, so we're not to neglect it, to be careless, to be unconcerned. Or how many people do you know that are, though? Even as people who, who, again, now here we are talking about some of those people who are within our church, but how many people do you know in your circle of Christian friends, supposed Christian friends, who totally neglect the Word of God? They're so careless. They're so apathetic. You can't even have a conversation of any depth with them because they don't know anything and they don't care to know anything. And, and they will tell you, I'm just not interested in that stuff. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Does it kind of just prick your heart a little bit to go, what's going on that they are so willing to neglect so great a salvation, to neglect the Savior of their life? They want this salvation, so they say, and yet they put no um, um, effort into knowing or, or uh, being engaged with this Savior that they, that they claim as their own. It, it's a scary thought. So how shall we neglect? How much more severe the... Pe- Let's go to 10, 28, and 29, because here was a reference. I think Kay gave this one to us and told us to go there. But she actually nails it down really well with that particular verse. Hebrews 10, 28 and 29. What does it say there? Somebody read that. Okay. Wow. 
Wow. Okay. What's really cool is this is within Hebrews itself. So this author is carrying this message. And this is why I was saying it's important that early on we establish an understanding that there's a dual message going on here. One is yes for the believer to exhort us, but the secondary message is to warn those who within the congregation have not actually come into this serious relationship. They are, ma- they are not paying attention. They are not being careful with the word of God or with their relationship with God. They are, they're apathetic in so many ways that, that they are in danger. And so this warning here in Hebrews 10, 28, how much more severe the punishment do you think it will be? He who deserves, who has trampled underfoot the son of God. Since in chapter one, he says it is God himself that has come He's the one whom God is now speaking through. He spoke before in this manner through the law, through the prophets, which the angels witnessed. But now he's speaking to us in his son. That's much more important to pay attention to. Yes. The thing about this is it's the whole trinity in there that he's talking Yes, it is kind of cool. And when he says whoever insulted the spirit. Yes. Not against the Holy Spirit. That's right. Because in ultimately what he's saying there is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is unforgivable, is to reject the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, do you have salvation? No. No salvation without. So to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is, is simply speaking of a rejection. And in essence, that is what was, is going on right here. He's saying if you, if you are um, being careless with, if you're not paying attention to, if you are neglecting, you need to examine whether or not you have a serious relationship with God or not. Praise God for all of you who are serious about your relationship with God, who are investing the time and the energy to get to know him and his word. No, it's just saying how much more severe do you think it should be? He's saying, what is there greater than death? Well, in the case of the Old Testament, there could be physical death. And, and the truth of the matter is, in the Old Testament, there could be some who would have transgressed. But, and because human beings are the ones making the judgment, they could physically take their life. But God would know whether to preserve their, salva- their soul or not, right? He's the one that can see beyond what the human can do. We now, in this new covenant, we allow God, by the Spirit, he is the one that is making the judgment. And he's just saying that it is a more serious matter for us because who we are actually rejecting is not Moses and the law, but we are rejecting the Son, the begotten Son who came in flesh. His message to us. Now, what's really cool is then she, she, he, he qualifies her, goes next step to it is number two. Why is it so important? Well, what does he say in the next verse, in verse four? How is it that we know this word is so much more important? How, do we, how are we sure that what we received has, has this more significant or powerful emphasis for us as opposed to others? So what does he follow it in verse 4? God testified about it. And how did God testify? By signs, wonders, and miracles and works of the Holy Spirit. So God testified to it. Now, then the the next thing that we need to look at is how did God do that? God testified with those who spoke.
And I'm just going to put by signs, and then you can get the rest on that, because I don't want to have to write all of that verse. But God testified with those who spoke the word of God by signs, wonders, miracles, right? And, and uh, other signs by the Holy Spirit. So he says, did you look up the word testified by any chance? I, I looked it up just because I, I found it to be a significant word in that particular verse. And it's, um, it's number 4901. It means also bear witness to affirm to agree, or to certify at the same time. In other words, God added his witness to their witness, their verbal witness, by doing supernatural signs of power. Now, what have we recently studied that shows that that is a fact? Do you remember which study? The book of Acts, all over the place, right? So, interesting. I want you guys to turn to a couple of verses real quick, though. Someone first turn to uh, John 3, 2, and then to John 20, 31. Because here we see Jesus. When Jesus came, was he accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles? So the first establishment is, is Jesus himself was affirmed, right? What does John 3, 2 tell us? Mm-hmm. Wow. So right there, the statement is given that even Jesus, he could, the, the Nicodemus's um, acceptance of the word of Jesus was that what Jesus had to say is affirmed and confirmed to him that it's truly from God because no one could do the signs that he does unless God was with him. Okay, then go on to John 20, verse 30 and 31. And it, it also kind of reiterates, it talks about everything that's been, been written in the book of John. The book of John on the whole is these things have been written that what? That you might believe. So somebody read 30 and 31. Wow. So everything written in the book of John was written so that you would believe and have life in his name. And the things which were written were all the signs that, that accompanied the ministry of Jesus to show that Jesus, in fact, was who he was claiming to be. And John chapter 2, Nicodemus recognized that. You could not do these things except that God be with you. So, okay, go ahead. I love that verse. You couldn't have begun to record all of them. And we, we actually know that because when you do synoptical observations of a lot of these things, there are a lot of things that get dropped in each one of these accounts. And things get filled in in other accounts because, the, you know, their emphasis or their point is a little bit different. But, yeah, they couldn't all possibly re be recorded because there were so many that they, the world could not even contain them. Okay, so now in page 41, you did some more following up on this idea that signs and wonders accompanied the message, which validated the strength of why we must pay much closer attention to this. One of the proof, now see, in apologetics concerning God's word, there are a lot of different things that you can address. This is just one. So one of the apologetic points here is that about the signs. So what do we see in, uh, you did Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians 12 on page 41. 
So what did you see in Romans 15? It was uh, verses 18 and 19. Did you guys not do that? Oh, 43. Am I in the wrong page? I'm sorry. I gave you the wrong page number. You're right. Okay. She says here, compare Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 with Romans 15 and 2 Corinthians. And what do you see as the purpose of the signs, wonders, and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit? So what did Romans 15 uh, show us? What was the purpose of the signs? Yes. Okay, so Paul was giving the message, and then he testifies concerning the signs, wonders, and miracles that he performed, that they gave, that they gave um, uh, validation to what he was preaching, correct? That they were the, the thing which showed that he had been sent by God, right? I like the next one, too. In 2 Corinthians 12, then Paul does it again. In 2 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12, what does he say? Yeah, and I think that's interesting. He says, you know, the signs of a true apostle I performed. And I'm not bragging, but I'm just telling you, I did. <laughs> I, lo I love what he does there. For one thing, it is, has apparently been a, a time immemorial argument whether or not Paul was actually an apostle. Yet he claims in every letter he writes that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ, although abnormally born. We did the book of Acts. How was he abnormally born? How did he see the Lord face to face that he could be claimed, claimed to be an, a, a true apostle? He, he saw the, he, Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus and appeared to him on numerous occasions through his ministry, right? So I, I love that. That was so good. So. Uh, th was to say that the gospel that was preached both by Jesus himself, well, I brought Jesus in, both by Jesus himself was, a, was affirmed by signs and wonders, but the gospel that was taught by, by Paul and all the apostles was also affirmed by signs, wonders, and miracles. It validated the fact that what they taught was legitimately true. And I think, you know, in a world where we live today, how many people doubt the word of God? They doubt that what's written in it is even true. One, it's just one apologetic point, but one of the points that we can bring up to them is, look, there is a record, a historical record. Now, this Bible is not just any old book. It's a historical record. It can be um, checked and rechecked against all kinds of resources, whether it be history, whether it be science, whether it be the politics of the day, whether it be whatever. And in this case, these were records of people who gave a testimony, and in all the written records that we have about the ancient church, there was no one to refute the, that those signs and wonders did not occur. Everyone concurred. They were there. They were present. They were happening. And what, what um, Kay is doing here is she's validating. She's saying, look, how much greater are we responsible for a word that came to us by signs, wonders, and miracles? Did theirs come to them by signs, wonders, and miracles? Yes. When Moses led them out, what, what did God do in order to prove that God was with him? 
He, he parted the sea. He brought the, lo the locusts upon the land. He brought the, the death of the firstborn son. Eventually, we saw lots of signs, wonders, and miracles. One of the things I think Kay is going to tell you guys about is that there are three periods where signs, wonders, and miracles are, are, have occurred throughout all of Scripture. The first one was the giving of the law. Then, then there is what we have now in the New Testament, the giving of the new covenant. And then there was one more. I think it was... Um, the prophets, when the prophets were first brought for Israel. So I think it started with, who was it, Elijah or one of those. She'll explain it on the tape. But anyway, so God testified with those who spoke the word of God by signs. So signs validate this word, this message, uh, this, I'll just put it on this, this word uh, the son brought. was true, okay? So the signs validated. So therefore, God testified by the signs and the wonders, and the signs validated that this, this word that his son had brought to us was true. That's a powerful opening statement before you get into any of the meat of the whole chapter, really, of chapter 2. He starts by validating that he spoke long ago in the, son, in the, the law and the prophets, and today he's spoken in his son. And I'm telling you, in his son is even more powerful than what they had before. And this son, by the way, he is the begotten son, the firstborn of the dead. He is the Lord God, the creator. And you need to understand that when he spoke, his word is so important you should not neglect. You need to pay closer attention. Wow, that's a, that's a powerful opening statement, isn't it? All right, so let's look at Jesus, our help then, because this is really cool. And I'm, we're just getting started. Now, know this. We are, not, um, we are not thoroughly exhausting chapter 2 yet. I'm sure you understand that. So what we're going to do right now is just touch on a couple of important key words that I think ties together some subjects for us. We're going to go back and talk again at, at this, this first one here. That in this, he, it says, do not neglect it because he is able to come to your aid. We see that in 2.18. It's where he, where he closes this whole chapter up. At the end of it, he's kind of got this little closing point that, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid those, of those who are tempted. So let's look at that, that subject here that he is able um, to come to the aid. Come to the aid uh, in 2.18. And then is there any other verse in here that you see him coming to the aid of? Yeah, in 16, he gives help. He gives help um, to man in 216. Now, I did a word study on that one. This is number 1949, giving help. We started with this conversation a little bit earlier, um, uh, and so let's go back and build on that. So does anybody... Did anybody else do it? You said, Carrie, you said you did one on that. So give me your word definition on gives help. Took upon to give help. Okay. All right. 
Any, did anyone else do any work on that by chance? All right. Did you see that look? All right. Let me read what my, uh, another part of it. It says, because all that Carrie said is correct. It's on there. But it also says to supply people with what they need or to give to people what is necessary or what they should have. Okay, so it's the idea of that he is going to give them what they should have or what they need. That's the idea of the giving help. Okay, and so if you take that then and go into Hebrews 4.16, somebody do that. Look at Hebrews 4.16 and see what it says there. It's the same word to give help. To seize or arrest, okay, uh-huh. To give help to man, to seize or arrest, which is very interesting when you get this fully developed. That's a good point, okay? Hebrews 4.16, who, who has that and wants to read that? Wow. So there's that same phrase to giving, of giving help. It's where? At the throne, and it's given to us by grace. What does that make you think of at this point, then, this kind of giving help? Well, that's a different word, though. It is? Oh, I thought it was the same word. Uh-huh, okay. Oh. Okay, well, then I, I, got, I got sidetracked on that one somehow. All right. At, in any event, he is to, that we may find mercy and find grace to give us help at the proper time. He's still, giving the, he's still offering the help, okay? So I wonder what that word means by definition. Can you, you got, the, in the dictionary, the only thing it says is help. Okay, all right. Help and aid. Okay. But so what, I, what we can see, though, at this point is the idea of aid and help are being united together, correct? Another word was the word concerned. I want to look at that word, too. Okay, I'll erase that 416 because it, it isn't the same word, and I don't want to mess this up. Okay. God is concerned for a man in 2.6. Okay, let's look at that one, concern. Did anybody do that one? Here it is, concerned about. Um, it's number 1980. It means to look upon or after, to look after, to have care for, provide for. It also means to take care of, and it, it has a connotation of being blessed. Okay, so he says in Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. So that, that was another reference I pulled in, but that one is not the But in 2.6, Hebrew 2.6, it means to take care of, to look after, to, to select carefully, to visit. Very cool uh, interpretations here, or translations. To look upon, to inspect, to examine with the eyes, um, to look upon in order to help or to benefit. Okay, so now again, we see them merging together. The idea of that he is concerned is merged with the idea of helping and giving aid, right? So aid, help, and concern are all speaking 
simultaneously about the same subject. And who is the subject matter, by the way? Jesus giving care, help, or aid to who? To man. Okay, so how does he help man? That's the next question. So let's do that up here on this side over here. I'm going to change my mark. How does God, how does Jesus, in this chapter, how does Jesus give help to man? That's my question, okay? So now what we're going to do is we're going to do paragraph uh, outline so that you have your paragraphs titled. Because this flow of thought is going to be very helpful, I think, as you do in, go into your next part of your homework, okay? So we saw in um, the first few verses is a warning, correct? Do not neglect your salvation, one through four. So it's kind of like a, an interlude. But then how does he go about giving us help? In 5 to 9, what did you see? Did you guys do your, out, do your paragraph uh, divisions by chance? You know, one of the things she asked you guys to do is go back last week and look at your flow of thought and see how it moves into the next one. So in essence, what she was saying is she needs you to do your paragraph outlines so that you see the flow of thought. You can't get there without doing that. She doesn't directly tell you, do your paragraph titles, but that is, in fact, what she was asking you to do. There we go. That's exactly that. He might, so he tasted death for everyone. That's how he gives us help. By tasting death for us on our behalf, right? He tasted death for everyone. 10 to 13, what do we see? Yeah, he was perfected by his sufferings. So I'm going to shorten this. Perfected by his suffering. Then what's, how does he help us? Oops, I'm sorry. Oh, let me see. I think it's so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing the sons to glory to perfect the author. I think this is God perfecting the author. It was fitting for God to perfect the author of their salvation. If you eliminate the if you eliminate the parentheses in the middle. Just go. It was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation. That's God. It's both of them though. It's both God and Jesus as we know, but Well, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. Yes. Um, to perfect the author of their salvation, he was perfect. The author was perfected through suffering. That's Jesus. The author was perfected. The author is Jesus. 
Right. And the author of their salvation is who? Jesus. So God, it was fitting for God to do this. This is how I'm reading it. That it is, it was fitting for God for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation, meaning his son Jesus, through his sufferings. That's how I'm reading it. Okay, good. All right, that's how I think. Okay, good. Perfect. We all agree. Okay, so since he was perfected by his sufferings, okay, I know that it is kind of tricky, you guys. Sometimes you have to back it up. You have to read the flow of thought. In this case, eliminate the parentheses, and then you get that better flow easier, I think. So since he, he, he tasted death for everyone, his being perfected gives us help, and then it results in what? Bringing sons to glory, and, and, he, and he calls it, so you can say bringing sons to glory. He brings sons to glory. God did this part in order to do this, but then also in, in the result, he does what for us? He sanctifies us, and he calls us what? Calls us brethren, our brothers. Isn't that an amazing he, I should have put them below one another so that you see three points there. So he calls us brothers. But what does he do for us? He, he brings us to glory. He sanctifies us because he was willing to, to go through that suffering or because he did go through that. He, in other words, he accomplished the required suffering to be our Savior. He could not have sanctified us and he could not bring us to glory unless he had himself been perfected by his sufferings. So how did he give us help? He, he was perfected by his sufferings so that he could then do those things for us. And then he calls us, so he calls us brothers now. All right, now in 14 to 16, what do we see him doing? I'm sorry, say it again. He is reconciling us, okay? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so through his death, he does what for us? He renders the devil powerless. That's certainly a help to us. He rendered the devil powerless. And he frees us, us from slavery and fear of death. That's a lot. Through his death, again, there's the cross. Through his death, he rendered the devil powerless, and he frees us from slavery and the fear of death. He tasted death. There's his cross. For everyone in order to bring the sons to glory to sanctify us. So then in 17 to 18, what did he do for us there? He made propitiation for sin. Okay. And therefore, consequently, in conclusion, he is able to do what? Able to give us aid. Isn't that interesting? So, he is able 
to come to man's aid. Now, with that flow of thought, what do we see the major subject here is? What is every single point about? What is it? How does he give us help? By being our savior, salvation. So the whole subject matter here in this whole flow of thought is don't neglect your salvation because he tested death for everyone. He perfected us by his suffering in order to bring us to glory and to sanctify us. Through his death, he rendered the devil powerless. He frees us from slavery and fear, and he made propitiation for sin. Now, therefore, he is able to come to man's aid. Now, this last statement is also speaking of being the intercessor for us when we come to him in our weaknesses as well. But, but first and foremost, the subject matter is salvation, which is what you really need. So when you go back over here, remember one one of the ones I read to you on coming to the aid of gives help and is concerned for is talking about giving man what he really needs. Ultimately, what he really needs is salvation. I know it. It is. No, it doesn't make sense. It, the, the, only, the only comprehension in it at all is that his love is so great that that he, it transcends the kind of love that man, human beings can really totally no, comprehend. No, human being can think no, no. And I think when you look at the flow of thought, it's these paragraph uh, titles that you come up with as you see the flow of thought that you really start to hone in on what is the major point here. How is Jesus greater than man or better than man? He's our savior in chapter 2. That's what he's really, it's all about, the salvation. Jesus is our help. Mm-hmm. When Sheena asked you what you see in what all verses were working in chapter 2. Oh, I know, uh-huh. For me, when I went through it and read it that way, you know, he ends it. He's talking about um, until we make him the stand of us all. But he's introduced the subject of what's to come Yes. Yes. If you were to read it, and he's saying, oh, this is to come, but later he said, he ends it with, are they not ministering spirits sent out from every servant for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That's right. And then you go right into where he did not subject the angels to it at the time, which you're all speaking. So it flows very well. Very well. I think so. That is right. Oh, that's a very good, very good way to concisely say that. Did you all catch that? She's, he's comparing what Jesus did, right, compared to what he's going to do. What is a finished work and what is yet a future thing promised to us. And in this, this idea of sanctification, that's why I thought it was so important that when you looked at the word salvation in, in uh, 14, that will inherit salvation is there speaking of glorification because it's speaking about that world which is yet to come but then in Hebrews 2 he talks about what Jesus again did for you so you can again make the switch back to what he did for you is he his death he so don't neglect it because he took on flesh so that you could have help for the things that you sincerely need which is your salvation. 
All right, so we've got, uh, what I did in my observation worksheet is I, wor- I you know, marked the word salvation, but then I marked the words concerned about and um, sanctified and gives help and comes to the aid all in the same way because they're all speaking of the same subject matter, which is the salvation that he's providing for us. That's the aid, the help, the concern that he had for us, right? Okay, so um, I have a little bit more, but we we have a little bit more time. Let's go on. It is so great a salvation. Obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory, he says in 2 Timothy. There was a comparison made. And actually, you kind of just touched on this. The comparison in here between that Jesus was made lower than the angels but now is crowned, right, is then uh, compared to man is made lower, but for a momentary time, we have not yet seen uh, our glory, that which is, he is going to put beneath our feet, right? Um, he says, you, in verse 7, you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have subjected all things to him, but we do not yet see it, do we? So, Give me some thoughts on this. How, how does this motivate the reader then to say this salvation um, is good for my soul, it's good for my sins, it prevents me from uh, 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 receiving the penalty of death, but it also promises something more for me, doesn't it? Something beyond that. And I think it almost enters uh, very subtly uh, the subject of the idea of even rewards for those who, who understand that as you live for the Lord, that God rewards those who love him and seek him, right? And that one day there, are, there is a promise for ruling and reigning, and for each of us it's going to be something different. We each get our own form of rule, uh, responsibility and rewards, Right? Um, the first one that I want to bring us to, though, is Revelation 20. Go, go to Revelation 20, verse 6. I want you to see, um, w- with a specific verse, where it talks about us ruling and reigning, where he's going to put all these things in subjection to our feet. And this is just one verse. There's a ton of them, but this is the one I thought was really good because it's right at the end. So I'm read that, Revelation 20, verse 6. Okay, so there's the emphatic statement that it's making reference to here where it says the world to come is going to be subject to us, to those of us who love him. So in this case, also we see, go back in 2.13 also. I want to show you this verse here. It says, he's giving us some quotes from the Old Testament. Did anybody get the, the exact scriptures nailed down on where those quotes are coming from? I will proclaim your name to my brethren. That's a quote from where? Okay, Psalm 22, 22, all right. And then he says, and again, I will put my trust in him. Well, where is that from? Okay, any others? I, I picked up a couple of others too. Psalm 18, 2, Isaiah 12, 2. I don't know if they're, I need to look a little bit further on that. And then behold, I and the children whom God has given to me is in Isaiah, that one is Isaiah 8, 
17 and 18, that's right. Okay, good. Now, what we see is when he's using scripture so far, it's always to support something that he's said before, correct? So before he's talking about sanctifying those who are, who are sanctified, right? He who sanctifies, meaning Jesus, and those who are sanctified, meaning us, right, if we come into faith, are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying. So now he's going to quote some verses where in the Old Testament it is prophetically uttered that he calls us his brethren at some point, right? So he says, all things, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Then he says this, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now, this is interesting. So prophetically, he's saying about what? Who's putting trust in who? Jesus is putting his trust in God. This is really a profound statement, I think. Um, First of all, it shows again, I and the Father are one, right? And the things that I, I see and the things that I do are all those things which I see the Father doing. So it makes them, again, this unity. But he puts it, he says, well, my question is, if Jesus puts his trust in God, what should I do? Should I not put my trust in God? If Jesus himself put his trust in God, I guess I'd never seen this verse in this way. It just never, it didn't hit me or strike me as profoundly as this. I thought, wow, that's a, that's a, that's a huge picture in my mind of Jesus totally putting his trust in God, his father. And so why shouldn't I put my faith and trust also? He partook of flesh and blood in verse 14, right? To do what for us? To render Satan powerless. What else? To free us from the fear of death, right? From death and from the fear, fear of death. In 17, this makes him for us what? That merciful high priest. So he can, he can intercede for us also on a daily basis. Even once we've been sanctified, then we can yet still run to him. Have our, put our trust and faith in God and understand that God validated all the words that Jesus said. So every single word that Jesus has spoken is true. It has been confirmed to us by in this record that we just looked at through the signs, the wonders, the miracles that Jesus himself performed and that the apostles who followed also did. So... He has then become our faithful, merciful high priest that we can go to in, in our time of need. He's made those propitiations for our sin. He is our help. Any other thoughts? Yes. Okay. So what, what is your definition? I'm curious. Partake. It's a, uh, the word is transliterated, I don't know the number, M-E-T-O-C-H-O-S. Yeah, okay. And, and the one who shares in it, a partner, a companion, a comrade, a participator. Okay. Sounds like a covenant partner, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, that's a good. That's another good one to look up. So you know, you guys, there often you're not you're not told to look up every word that 
is of interest. She has you look up certain ones in order to help you with your homework, but there are more beyond that. So I really highly encourage you to continue to, anytime you see a word in a sentence that seems profound and it seems to be making an important statement in some way, look it up just out of curiosity. Even if when you're done, you don't think you learned that much. It's still a good exercise. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, you know, we're already cleansed from our guilt, but sin is still around us. Yes. You know, but when, later, after propitiation has been made, you know, in the world to come, we're going to be walking in between probably complete reconciliation. Awesome. All right. Any other thoughts? Well, we, I can't believe, do you have any questions? Anybody? All right. We finished a tad bit early. Can you believe it? Yes. Okay. One more question. Hold on. No, that's true. That is simply a fulfillment of. 